Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's guest on the show is a professor of psychology at Stanford University and director of the Stanford Neuroscience Lab. And he's looked at what empathy and kindness do to humans on all sorts of different levels and wrote a fascinating and engaging book called The War for Kindness, which is something that you want to pay attention to because right now it's too easy when you're feeling like you're under threat, even if you're not actually under threat, um, that you snap out of kindness. Uh, I have fervently believed since the beginning of Bulletproof that when we have enough energy that we're fundamentally wired to be kind to each other. That's actually one, it's the fourth F word if you're familiar with my three big F words. So I wanted to have uh, Professor Jamil Zaki on the show. Uh, this is the time when you can hack your response to the environment so that you are naturally kind and it doesn't take effort, that it's just built in and there's experiments, there's all kinds of cool stuff we're gonna talk about. So Jamil, welcome to the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. You could have studied sociopaths, psychopaths <laughs> and uh, abnormal nail-biting behaviors and you chose kindness. So what's wrong with you? <laughs> uh, if I was studying psychopaths, I'd still be studying kindness because I'd be studying its absence. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you um, go. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I, uh, my parents come from really different countries. My mom from Peru and my dad from Pakistan. And they had a, uh, you know, they, they got together in Pullman, Washington of all places and fell in love. I think mostly because they were both so confused in the U S that they found comfort in each other. Oh, but wow. they, uh, they quickly, I think realized, uh, as they became acclimated in the U S how little they actually had in common and had this acrimonious sort of long divorce that took up a bunch of my childhood and I'm their only kid. And I think a lot of kids of divorced parents feel as though they inhabit multiple worlds at the same time. Yeah. The reality of each of their parents. And for me, a lot of my childhood, it was really a survival skill to sort of learn to tune myself to their different frequencies and learn to connect with them, even though they were having such trouble connecting with each other. And I kind of feel that's the biggest skill I ever picked up in my life. So pretty much everyone who goes into psychology has childhood trauma. Is that what I heard you say? <laughs> you know, we might be overrepresented. <laughs> who knows? They they do say they do say in, in my field that research is me search. So if you if you find someone studying something, they either have a lot of it, or maybe they don't have much of it at all. <laughs> no, it, it it's kind of funny. It, it it is a true statement though. It, it's even true. You know, anesthesiologists you know, like, well, why did you want to knock people out? <laughs> I mean, you could have been a proctologist. Like, wait, why'd you want to do that? Like any profession that's medical and intervening with other people, you're like, why did you go there? And, and the question, the answer is always interesting. And, and it's not necessarily, you know, that indicative of something, but uh, you, you basically were dealing with two different cultures, uh, divorced parents. You're like, all right, I want to get into this. And you got into kindness though, not, you know, family systems and all that. So what is it about kindness that's special or different or like what made it you know, worthy of your career pursuit? I think it's among human beings, I don't know, top three capacities that have allowed us to thrive as a species. I mean, our secret is comes in so many ways, in so many forms. Um, we can plan really well, we can remember well, but really, if you look at us 100,000 years ago, we were a pretty unimpressive animal, right? Just a medium-sized mammal, not particularly fast or strong. We couldn't fly or swim very well. But 
in part, our ability to work together is what allowed us to succeed. Because even if as individuals, we were unimpressive as a collective, we are like a super organism that can do something that can do things no other animal ever could. So I really think that even now there's all sorts of evidence that kindness is our kind of superpower. It is our, it's our, it, it's a superpower hidden in plain sight in a way. I, I very much appreciate that. Uh, can I walk you through the the framework that I've been using to to talk with with listeners? Uh, I'll do it quickly because some people have heard it, some people haven't. Um, but I want you to poke holes in it. <laughs> that, that's why I'm doing this. Uh, so this, this is in the interest <laughs> of learning. Um, and, and you'll you'll recognize some of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and some other stuff in there. But it's it's from a biological behavior based thing. All life forms have to follow this algorithm. Um, and first thing is run away from kill or hide from something that's scary because. Okay, you die right now. So bacteria do it. Plants secrete toxins. You know, we run away or we, you know we hide. We, we do our defensive thing. So that's most important. Um, second thing you do is you eat everything because a famine could be coming around the corner, right? I mean, all animals will do this. Like they'll stuff themselves if you give them good stuff, right? And then including humans, um, you know, that's pizza. Uh, and then the third thing is so the first one is is fear. The second one is um, food. The third one is also an F word and all life has to do it. Well, what do uh, yeah. you think that might Ro- be? Romance? No, it's, it's an F word. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm kidding. <laughs> the F word that, that sounds that, for, that is for, related for, to romance. Fertility. What, what, what were you thinking about? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. So uh, I, I apologize if I've used that on another guest and you're hearing this for like the fifth time. Cause that's my, that's the only joke I know anyway. Um, so, those are the big three things that all humans want to do. But okay, if you're doing those to some degree of satisfaction, the fourth F word that all life does, not just humans, and I'm saying this is why I, I believe that kindness is hardwired, is the F word that's friend. Because it doesn't matter if you're kombucha. You're like, oh, how do I form a system with the life around me, including other yeast or bacteria? How do I form a biofilm? How do I form a, you know, a, a stand of trees? How do I form... Uh, you know, cheese, how do I form a, a tribe? How do I form, uh, you know, a herd? Every life form does this to some degree or another with different styles. But it, it feels like it's hardwired in, in, in that there is no form of life. It's like, I'm the only one of me. I will be all alone. I will not reproduce and I will not make friends with anyone I've reproduced. Doesn't mean I won't eat my babies. That's a different strategy. Um, you know, snakes and stuff like that. But still, they have a sociological structure. So are we wired as humans to be kind to each other or are we wired just to pummel each other with rocks and take each other's, you know, lucky charms? <laughs> I think both in a way. I, I absolutely hear what you're saying. And I think, you know, the, the, the Fs that you bring up are Fs that we talk a lot about in biology and in psychology. And you're also right that friendship or just being part of something greater than ourselves is not a luxury. It's not a nice to have. It is fundamental to survival. I mean, if you want to run away from a predator and you're alone, good luck, because a lot of predators are a lot faster and a lot stronger than you. And it's by engaging as a collective that we're able to succeed. And that's not mm-hmm. just in humans. So like, think about fish, right? So uh, if fish, uh, a school of fish starts being attacked by large predators, what do they do? They form a bait ball. They yeah. sort of form a giant clump where they're all sort of protecting themselves via each other, but they're also protecting each other, right? So it's only through mutual aid 
That's what the evolutionary theorist Peter Kropotkin called it, mutual aid and social behavior that many animals, including us, are able to survive um, and be fertile, as you as you put right, it. Right, right. So, so I, I guess what I'm here is all life forms have one slow friend, which which is like the bait friend, so that a predator will eat them. And so, you know. <laughs> right. You don't have to be faster than the tiger. You just have to be faster than your friend. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm always looking for slow friends. It, it's it's an important part of my strategy. Uh, now, uh, so if it is wired in that, that we do that and we do survive better as a species, and clearly, oh look, that guy, he's he's the one who makes fire, and that guy over there is the one who does skins or whatever. You know, we specialize, and and every life form specializes. So. Is that the same thing as kindness or is that different? If it's just survival-based, it feels like it's utilitarian. So help everyone listening understand what kindness actually is. I mean, you're measuring this in a lab. What are the units of measure? How how do you know that it's there versus just self-interest? Yeah, so kindness is also known as pro-social behavior or pro-sociality in psychology and economics, and it's any behavior that benefits someone else. Now, let's cut kindness into two parts. One, cooperation. That's where I benefit you and me at the same time, right? That's when we work together to accomplish something that neither of us could do alone. Now, the other part the other type of kindness would be altruism. That's where I do something for you and I don't benefit and maybe I'm even worse off for doing it. So the classic example of that would be someone in the military throwing themselves on a grenade to protect the rest of their platoon, right? Obviously, they're sacrificing everything in order to act kindly towards others. Now, for, I don't know, centuries, millennia, people have been trying to to divide uh, altruism from cooperation by saying, is there an act that we can find that is truly altruistic? Uh, and the answer is, it's really difficult and it depends on how you define it. Because sometimes I might act kindly towards you and it's obviously for a self-interested reason or a cooperative reason. You benefit, but I get a tax break. You benefit, but I impress somebody who I'm hoping to date. Or you benefit, but then you pay me back. You feel like you owe me something later on. Now, maybe I can say, well, what if I uh, donate to charity anonymously? Maybe that's an act of true altruism because where's the benefit? But it turns out, and this is some research that I and lots of other people have done, that when you give to others, you actually experience pleasure. Like we found using functional magnetic resonance imaging that when you donate money to someone else, you activate similar parts of your brain as when you eat chocolate. So if we enjoy kindness, does that make it selfish? These are the types of questions that people have been asking for a long time. And I think we should stop asking (laughs) because to me, even, yeah, because to me, even if the way that we're built biologically means that we enjoy kindness, To me, that doesn't take away from how powerful it is that we are kind. I think it makes it more powerful and more beautiful that we've evolved to enjoy it. So kindness is a selfish act. Depending on how you want to define selfishness. (laughs) But if if you you do it because it feels good, that's that's kind of selfish, right? I I think it is in a way. But let's think about what the self and selfish means. Empathy is the idea that even though we're physically apart, psychologically we overlap that my internal definition of me also includes my kids, my wife, my parents, my friends, and even other people writ large, my tribe. And so if myself extends to all of them, then helping them is like helping me. 
Now, you can call that selfish if you want, but I actually think it's quite a poetic feature of human nature. Uh, it, it is poetic. It is beautiful. And uh, the studies show your heart rate variability goes up, your cortisol goes down. And uh, when you when you do things to help another person uh, suffer less or experience uh, happiness, it pays off biologically. Like, like we are wired so that we will want to do that at some level. Um, if we're wired that way, and by the way, do you believe we're wired that way? Just to be real blunt. Oh, yeah, I do. Okay, good deal. I don't want to put words in your mouth. So if we're wired that way, why do people act like such assholes sometimes? You know, the novelist George Saunders <laughs> writes about, <laughs> he writes about what he calls built-in confusions. Yeah. So I think that, I think, let's go back to your four, four Fs framework, right? Mm -hmm. We need friends, but you put that forth. And I think a lot of people put that forth and they believe that first and foremost, we need to do for ourselves. We need to protect ourselves. We need to have enough resources for ourselves. We need to not get eaten and we need to eat. And those things are true. Of course, we need those things. But I think that too often, those two desires that we've evolved to have feel like they should be pitted against each other. We think that in order to do for myself, that means I need to consider myself an individual apart from other people. I need to you be mean, selfish. You mean socially isolated? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, but it, and, and we think, oh gosh, I, I need to protect myself. I need to be apart from others. I need to be individualistic. And that fear that by giving to others, we will lose what we need for ourselves. I think mis, mis, it misleads a lot of people into a very isolating, assholic life <laughs> um, when they could be gaining a lot more, even for themselves if they were kinder and, and interacted more with others. I appreciate that, that perspective a lot. Uh, so some people are that way, but you know, there's, a, there's an inner conflict about it. It is a, a, an inner conflict. It's, it's so interesting though, how clearly people are wrong. So you might know about these studies, but sure, Liz yeah. Dunn and, and, uh, and Lara Aiknin and others have done these studies where they give people money and ask them, you know, how happy do you think you would be if we gave you five bucks or if we gave you 20 bucks and if you spent it on either yourself or someone else? And people robustly say, oh, I'd be way happier if you gave me money to spend on myself and I'd prefer 20 over five. Thank you very much. Right. right. Um, but then if they actually give those people money and have them spend it on either themselves or someone else and then ask them at the end of that experience, how happy are you? People are much happier when they spend money on someone else than when they spend it on themselves. And it doesn't matter whether it's $5 or $20. There's a, a, a famous clip from some you know, YouTube prankster guy. Uh, he and a friend gave a hundred bucks to a homeless guy uh, and, and said, oh, you know, let, let's record him. He's just going to go buy alcohol. Watch. And, and he goes and he actually like buys food for everyone else who's homeless and, and basically spends it all on other people. Uh, and, and they're just literally the guys are in tears and they're like, here, have everything in my wallet. Like you're a better human than I am and, and walked away. <laughs> and it seems like you know, that guy had figured that trick out that, you know, it felt better. And, uh, I, I I'm touched by that video and, and by other examples of people, uh, choosing kindness like that. Um, how, how is this changing now that we don't really see other people for a while, or we see them you know, over Skype or zoom or whatever, uh, it is, is there a shift in our kindness wiring because we're oftentimes just with our family or by ourselves? 
You mean in general, like as our society has yeah, changed? Yeah, what, what's right it doing now? to us? Yeah. Like we're, we're doing this weird social experiment around, oh, actually, maybe you are individual. Maybe you are all alone. It's certainly from a pheromone and, you know, hugs and human contact and things that are documented to make you kind of feel better. Uh, all those are suddenly swept away uh, and we're living in these weird little bubbles. What is it doing for our kindness to each other? Is it going up, going down, going sideways? It's really complicated. I've been so worried about it because on the one hand, you know, with this pandemic and us all being apart, I'm very worried about a second epidemic of loneliness, of people yeah. basically feeling like this isolation is just getting to them. And loneliness, as you know, is one of the most psychologically and physically poisonous things around. It, it, it tracks cardiovascular ill health, depression, lost sleep and disrupted sleep, um, it, poor immune function. There's a study from uh, about almost 20 years ago where they actually gave people um, the common cold virus Mm-hmm. And they measured how many symptoms they developed. And the way that they measured this, I'll never forget. They had them blow their nose into a tissue and weighed how much snot they were producing. <laughs> and, and, it, and, <laughs> and it turned out that lonely people, people who had fewer social ties, less diverse social ties, less regular social contact, and felt less integrated with others, became sicker when you exposed them to the cold virus. They were more likely to get it and their symptoms were worse. So I think, again, the idea that we are sort of biological free agents and that our biology is separate from our social life is a fallacy. We are, even deep into our bodies, social creatures. And so being removed from that is a terrifying thought in a way. On the other hand, um, this pandemic has brought out a third sort of epidemic, which is of kindness. There has been massive amounts of people engaging sort of in charitable donations and trying to help their neighbors. There are all these mutual aid, Google, I mean, Google spreadsheets, not the most inspiring genre usually, but there have been all these mutual aid spreadsheets where people are, uh, especially younger, able-bodied people offering to help their more vulnerable neighbors um, in whatever ways they can. So I think that even while we're physically separate, we can feel together, including by helping each other. Okay. So we can do some of it, but it seems like it's more of a cognitive. It's not like you're, you're giving a lonely person a hug. Uh, it, is there a difference in in this kindness thing when when you're you're not getting eye contact when when you're not touching it and, and how important is the physical part of kindness versus the cerebral kindness for lack of a better word i think it's it's a great point and i think it is important so there are all these studies where they um they give one person painful electrical shocks or whatever they give them pain and they're either holding the hand of someone they love or not and when you're not holding someone's hand, pain hurts worse. And areas of your brain associated with feeling pain are more active than when you're holding someone's hand. So again, physical contact, touch, so important. On the other hand, you sort of separated earlier physical contact versus cerebral connection. But one of the amazing things about our brains is that we really can simulate all sorts of physical experiences, right? If you if you sort of, if I ask you to imagine a bright light your pupils will constrict mm-hmm. as though you've just like walked out of a movie theater into the afternoon light. Right. So there, so I, I don't know that, that I, I don't know whether the types of connections we're forming can replace physical contact. What can really, but I think that we can make really meaningful connections even from yeah. a distance. I, I buy that. 
you you talk about a few different words that all of which I believe in, but I don't know that I can really tell where one starts and stops. Uh, you talk about kindness, you talk about compassion, and you talk about empathy. And it, it kind of feels like in some circumstances you could almost interchange them, but they are all different, at least in the the meditation traditions where, where I'm trained in transpersonal psychology and things like that. How do you, as a researcher, define kindness versus empathy versus compassion? And then I want you to tell me how to raise all three of them. <laughs> um, thank you. I, I think this is a really important, it's really important to get clarity because these can feel like such soft and fuzzy terms, but they're not. I mean, at least from a research perspective, we can measure them. And so, uh, as I said earlier, kindness is a behavior that benefits another person. It's anything that I do that leaves you better off than you were before. Um, and, and then uh, empathy is an experience. It's the experience of connecting with someone emotionally. Now, the way that researchers think about empathy is as an umbrella term that actually contains multiple ways we relate to each other. So I'll give you an example. Let's say that you're talking, uh, having lunch with a friend um, back when we could do that. <laughs> yeah. And um, he, he gets a phone call and you don't know who's on the other side or what they're saying, but he starts to cry. And it's not a happy, it's not happy tears. So a bunch of things might happen in you. First, you might feel really crappy yourself. You might start, start to feel sad. You might even feel yourself start to tear up. That would be emotional empathy or emotion contagion when you catch vicariously what someone else is feeling. Then you might try to think about what he's feeling and why. Was he expecting some news or something? That's what we'd call cognitive empathy, trying to piece together what's going on in someone else's experience. And then third, you might want to help him. You might feel an urge or a desire for his well-being to improve. That's what we would call empathic concern. But, and here's a key point, it's interchangeable with compassion. So the way that scientists often see it is that empathy is like a big umbrella term. And then compassion would be one of the components of our sort of emotional connectedness to others. Does that make okay. sense? Uh, it, it does make sense. All right. Actually, before you even tell us how we're going to raise those in ourselves, stack rank them. Most important to least important. Oof. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the, the NBA draft and social <laughs> behavior and experience. <laughs> uh, number one to the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers is, uh, I, you know, I think that it depends. So um, kindness is obviously, I think, the most important for us as a collective. Okay. You know, I think that we need we need to cooperate. We need to work yeah. together. And that's whether you're in a family or a company or okay. a culture. You can be kind even if you don't feel any empathy and you think everyone's a jerk. You can. But okay. when it comes to your personal health, probably a combination of uh, of kindness and compassion matter a lot. It's very expensive to be to be full of hate and act kind. Like it, it's just <laughs> you get tired doing that. I, I would imagine anyway. So okay. We, we ran a study with Stanford students where we asked them to, we asked them how many kind acts they had engaged in that day. And we asked them how much empathy they had felt that day um, and compassion. And what we found uh, was that, um, was that when people acted kindly, they generally felt better uh, and they felt less stressed, they felt less lonely and so forth. But okay. that was especially true if they had felt compassion for the person to whom they had acted kindly. And kindness in the absence of compassion didn't seem to help very much. Now, 
dead. So, so, so behind both of those in my priority list would be other forms of empathy, especially, I think it's important to understand other people, but sharing other people's pain, although sometimes like a kickstart for kindness and compassion can also be really dangerous. We can, it can burn us out. It can overwhelm us really quickly and it can make us want to avoid social contact instead of engaging. I mean, imagine walking down a block in midtown Manhattan and feeling the pain of everyone you saw. You'd like collapse in in, in a minute. And so I don't know that that type of empathy is very sustainable. Now, when you say feeling this, this pain of others, so how what, what is our feeling uh, apparatus for that? Is this, you know, a magnetic resonance from our heart? Is this an eye thing? Do we smell them? Uh, is it how they walk? Like, like, what is our transmission method if I wanted to walk down the street in Manhattan and feel everybody's pain? Yeah, well, I'm curious as to your experience of this. I, I think you've got such great intuitions here. When you see someone, let's say a stranger on the street, and you can tell they're suffering, how do you feel it? What do you pick up on? I'm still thinking about in New York, how would you feel someone's pain? I mean, there's the obvious, these things where you might notice with your eyes, most likely. But if if I'm in that emotional state, okay, like I, I run a neuroscience thing where, that teaches people to be in advanced altered states of meditation. And I've gone to Tibet and studied, you know, heart opening stuff. So yes, I can feel it in my heart if I'm open at that level, which obviously walking down the street in New York, being up that level seems kind of dumb. And I, I don't do that, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, it, it's like you should use an energetic condom already. Um, but <laughs> Uh, so I, I would say I have learned over the course of, of practice uh, to be able to to feel that and to tap into that. Usually eyes make it easier. Um, but uh, I, I don't know that I do on a regular basis unless I'm choosing to. But I, I'm yeah. part alien. I, I, I don't think I'm typical there. So like what, what, what do normal people do? <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, what you described is actually pretty normal. Okay. Uh, you know, the, 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 certainly the, the most prevalent way that psychologists and neuroscientists have studied empathy is by showing them things, showing them pictures of people who have just, you know, accidentally got their foot stuck in a door or, you know, have cut, cut themselves while cooking or something like that. And those visual images rapidly create sensations that are consistent with pain, right? So rapidly create brain activity that's mm -hmm. consistent with pain, rapidly cause people to flinch, cause their palms to sweat. And to the extent that people have these reactions, they also tell us that they're empathic and they're also more likely to want to help those people, right? So there is a sense that when we see other people in pain, that sight gets into our body really quickly and really powerfully. And it's almost as though we simulate exactly their experience at some level. You, I'm sure have heard of the mirror neuron system, which yeah. is, you know, sort of one biological conduit through which that works. Uh, but it's also true that this can work through hearing. So there are all these interesting studies where people, uh, play scientists play for parents the sound of their own child crying or the sound of another child crying and it's extremely easy to demonstrate the emotional sort of uh sort of weight of hearing one's own child and it, you know so again that's without seeing anything but we've all all, all parents have probably been there at some point or uh, yeah i think they all have and now that no one's flying uh maybe we can miss the sound of a child screaming on an airplane <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I used to I'll admit when I was, you know, uh, uh, you know, early 20s, uh, arrogant punk, uh, you know, on an airplane, like, why would you fly with your kids? Like, well, because I'm human and humans have kids. And, you know, because that's how it is. 
And so call that lack of empathy, which is not uncommon. Uh, but after I had kids, anytime I'd see someone with a screaming baby, I'm like, you know what everyone's thinking, don't you? And they're like, oh, no. I'm like, well, they're thinking, thank God it's not mine. <laughs> so that, that would be the empathetic thing because of shared suffering versus non-empathetic um, for, for whatever, whatever that example's worth. I just, I feel like you can tell yourself a story to give yourself empathy. And, and it's something I've shared with, with listeners. You know, someone cuts you off in traffic. If you're low energy, uh, you're tired, you're hungry, you're hypoglycemic, you're going to make up a story in your head about how they're a bad person trying to steal your pizza or they're disrespecting you and, you know, road rage, whatever. Or you make up the story that gives you empathy, which is like, oh my God, they're on the way to the hospital to, you know, feed a dying priest or whatever, you know, <laughs> I, you don't know, but something important. So uh, that's going to give you empathy and like, oh, there you go. But your biological response is very different. So I know the cognitive trick to do that and that one thing, but how would someone listening to this who's probably freaked out by hearing you know, just constant news about uh, how they're shifting anyone who died from anything and saying it's COVID related uh, right now, uh, which, which is happening in the data and, and other stuff like that. But we're pretty much 24-7 news cycle of there's an invisible enemy about to get you, even though the data isn't actually like that. But you're feeling that you're like, oh, now I'm going to feel empathy. Like, what's the what's the switch that you can flip in order to say, all right, I want to go from, you know, creeping, creeping threat to I'm feeling empathy for others. What's the trick? You know, I've been thinking a lot about this and I actually um, have been writing an op-ed on this topic that, you know, it's terrifying to have an invisible, faceless enemy that can Ill infiltrate any border, et cetera. Um, and that can get us exactly as you're saying into this state of total fear where we just want to cocoon right. ourselves away from everyone else. But I think it's important to know that one of the things that brings people together the fastest, that makes us care for one another the most is having a common threat, being on the same side of a fight. Um, so there's all sorts of evidence of when, you know, during wartime and attacks and catastrophes that actually people band together. And I think that one thing that I've been thinking myself and that's helped me and that I've been telling other people is, you know, remember in this moment that you might be scared, there might be this frightening thing, you know, all, all around us, but everyone else is scared of it as well. And in fact, we all have a lot more in common than we typically do, even if we're apart. Uh, and, and that sense of common humanity and common vulnerability can really actually ignite massive amounts of empathy. We're all facing this, this creeping invisible enemy that's even worse than kale. And <laughs> sorry, picking on kale is a sport. Uh, anyway, uh, we're all facing this and now we know we're facing it together except well over Skype anyway. And I still don't feel empathy. In fact, I feel stressed because I don't have a job. There has to be something heavier than knowing it's a shared threat. Like, like what's, yeah. what's the, what, is there empathy spray? Like, is there, is there a, a drug for empathy? Is there some crazy spin around three times and chant a mantra? It, 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 what, what is it? Like, hack empathy. You, you give a talk on hacking empathy. Come on, give it to me straight. What, what is it? Like, hack empathy. You, you gave a talk on hacking empathy. Come on, give it to me straight. <laughs> um, well, so first of all, the realization that we have a common enemy is, is I think, more powerful than, than, than one might think, because it, it not only, it, it's not just a thought, 
it's a thought that can lead to action. It can lead us to feel more comfortable asking others for help. It can lead us to be more comfortable helping them. It can lead us to be more comfortable talking about what we're going through with other people. And that type of social support is hugely powerful. But if you really want to hack, I think it's something that you probably have done many times, which is, t- which is going beyond just saying we are suffering, the struggles that we're having are common, and actually turning that into a contemplative practice, right? So loving kindness or metta meditation is one very simple practice where you acknowledge your own suffering. You acknowledge that it's similar to that of another person, even the person who cuts you off in traffic. And, uh, and then you express and sort of try to point goodwill at your suffering and others. And it sounds, again, very fuzzy, but it turns out that psychologists and neuroscientists have found profound effects of that type of meditation <laughs> on the brain. You, you actually just described a substantial portion of the first couple of days of 40 years of Zen, the neurofeedback training thing that I do. We actually teach people that skill with electrodes on their head. So, no, you didn't do it. There, you did it. Mm-hmm. And if you do it a few times, you can literally, it, it's a physical sensation that you can do that allows you to project that in someone else, which magically makes your brain work better. Like it, it's it's one of those things you do like, you know, stretching and like, oh, like there, I, I did it, but I, I don't I don't know how to put words to it, but your words were pretty darned accurate um, uh, from my experience. That's awesome. First of all, have you seen uh, the work of Tanya Singer and her colleagues in Leipzig, Germany? They've got this f- enormous project that they've been running over the last I don't know, eight years where they train people in different forms of meditation, including something that's pretty close to, it's a kind of an adapted form of of loving kindness. And they scan their brains um, sort of, uh, so they do these types of meditation training, Mm -hmm. three types of meditation, each one for three months. And it's sort of like this randomized control trial drug almost where they're sort of using each arm as a a, a placebo for the other one. But I digress. uh, Suffice it to say that not only does training in metta sort of, or loving kindness help people become kinder, uh, help them understand other people more clearly, help them uh, empathize more deeply, but also it changes their brain. And and the profound thing to me about about this study, a lot of us do what is known as functional magnetic resonance imaging, where we're basically looking for where in the brain is active. But these folks in a paper published in 2017 did structural MRI, and they found that parts of the brain that are associated with empathic connection actually grew in volume as a function. Which parts were those? Do you remember? The anterior insula was was one of the key uh, regions that they looked at, which is okay. a region, you know, and, and let's be clear that when you think about something like empathy or kindness, there's not going to, there's not going to be one brain region that tracks something that complicated, it, right? It's That's all phrenology. Yeah. 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 We're, we now know that there's lots of regions involved in lots of things, but let me say that that said, the anterior insula does appear to be involved in the experience of empathy. And it, again, is deeply affected by this type of meditation practice. Uh, it, the loving kindness and the traditional open heartedness, uh, a big heart, all, all that stuff. Um, it, it appears to work from a neurological basis because you see these profound shifts in, in what people's brains can do. And you can also spot electrically the brain of someone who does it regularly because you know, the amplitude and the network effects are very different. So I, I think it's important. It's, it's, a part of, it's a part of my practice. But in, in your book, in the, the second chapter, you talk about how some people reject empathy as a choice. 
and I, I can predict what that would do to your brainwaves, but why would someone reject empathy? What, what leads to that? Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Well, I mean, you you talked about in, in the Manhattan example, rejecting empathy. And I think it's not always a bad choice. I, I do think that, again, if, if you're in a situation where empathy will overwhelm you, um, where it will actually interfere with you doing what you need to do, for instance, then you probably need to shut it off. A linebacker uh, who empathizes with the running back will be really bad at doing their job, at tackling, <laughs> right? right? And, and a soldier would be even worse. Or a surgeon, right? A surgeon mm-hmm. who feels the pain of a patient can't help that person. So I think it's it's adaptive and to the good overall that we have control over our emotional experiences, which we do, as, as I'm sure you know. So we control all sorts of emotions. We can turn empathy up or down like the volume knob on a stereo, and that's a good capacity to have. The problem is when we make mistakes with that capacity, when we decide that we shouldn't empathize because we think it would be better to focus on ourselves and we're dead wrong and it actually hurts us. Okay. How do we know? Or or sitting at home, <laughs> uh, or, you know, binge watching Netflix, hopefully listening to a few podcasts here and there. And are you doing this? Or are you not doing this? What's our, our method of awareness for this? Of how empathic we're being, well, how much whether we're, we're turning it off people. or not. I mean, I don't think most most soldiers go. You know, today I'm going to turn off empathy and and go win the war. It, it's not like that. It seems like it's mostly unconscious. I don't I don't go. Well, I'm in New York today, so I'm going to you know put on my energy condom. Uh, I I just kind of <laughs> naturally like it's like if you're in a bright sun bright sunshine, you squint right to help block out some yeah. of the light. And it seems like it's mostly automated when whether or not we block out empathy. But I, uh, you're actually saying you can choose to reject empathy, but you can also choose to take more of it in. So how do you know if you're rejecting it without, like when you're not paying attention? Well, I think a, a, our, a lot of our mental lives are on autopilot in lots of ways most of the time. And a question, and that's, again, that's a good thing because we, we couldn't just, we couldn't be tuning all of our knobs all the time and also walk and chew gum. We'd fall, we'd fall over, right? So it's good that we're on autopilot a lot of the time in a lot of ways. But I do think that there's a way to kick off autopilot and, and interrogate, become curious about what's happening inside ourselves. So I think you aptly described a situation where if I'm hypoglycemic, if I'm stressed, if I'm sleep deprived, I'm going to have certain thoughts about people and I'm going to act certain ways that if I don't think about it, I won't realize I'm being unempathic right now. But if you step out and sort of try to see an interaction you're having as a fly on the wall, for instance, I bet that it would be pretty easy to pick out when you've acted in a way that was unempathic or when you've had thoughts that are incurious about other people. 
I mean, one thing that I try to do, and this is not me as a scientist, it's just me as a person, is if I'm having a conversation, I ask myself what someone said that surprised me or that I learned from. Because I think a lot of the time in conversations, we actually are so focused on our own story that we have already decided is right before we have a conversation that we don't actually empathize or listen much at all. And if we are listening, one sign is that we learn something or we're surprised. That was totally surprising. <laughs> Sorry. That's very empathic <laughs> you, of you. You laid that one out for me. I just had to take it. Uh, okay. You also talk about something called contact theory uh, in, in your War for Kindness book. Uh, what is contact theory? What does that have to do with hatred? Uh, kind of walk listeners through that. Yeah. So, um, Contact theory is a really simple idea that was uh, popularized by the psychologist Gordon Alport right around World War II. And the idea is, gosh, we hate so many people, but maybe we hate people just because we don't know them that well. I think that Mark Twain said something like, um, like uh, uh, travel is poisonous to hatred and bigotry, and that's why people need to do it more. The idea being that if you actually got to know people who are different from you, it would be very difficult to reduce them in the way that we do, to dehumanize them. And so since Alport wrote about this, so he, he found all these examples. For instance, um, in World War II, uh, white soldiers who had never fought alongside uh, a black soldier, most of them did not want to be in integrated platoons. They didn't want to fight with black soldiers. But those who had already fought alongside black soldiers sort of a vast majority of them were happy to be in an integrated platoon. So the idea is prejudice is easy from far away, but hard from close up. And that once we get to know people, we open up to them. And since then, there have been like hundreds of studies demonstrating exactly that, that when we form close contact with other people who are different from us, who have different identities than us, our prejudice decreases. And one of the reasons for that is that we have increased empathy for not just that person, but people from the group that that person belongs to. Um, I had a, a podcast in the last 10 or so episodes uh, where I talked about the coronic cognitive epidemic, uh, right? Where, you know, what, what are we doing to ourselves? Uh, uh, there's something called a moral, uh, a moral panic, uh, a field of psychology that, that's been studied. And we went into great detail, but it, it, the theory that we talked about was that a lot of xenophobia and even racism is tied to our fear of germs that we got when we moved for the first time into closely packed agricultural cities. So we know and it, there is a threat. People die, uh, right? Uh, and uh, uh, from pandemics and bubonic plague and all that kind of stuff you know, many, many uh, years ago. So we just learned kind of as a survival uh, genetic, a very deep-seated aversion uh, to this kind of a thing. So someone comes in who doesn't look like you, they probably have germs. You don't think this, but your body kind of knows it. They probably have germs. They might have cooties. Uh, I, I know in, in third grade, we used to say, oh, you touched a girl, cootie spray. And the girls say, you touched a boy, cootie spray. But you know, like this, this sort of like cloud of badness, right? Yeah. Uh, do you think that that's that that's going to get worse from this? Like, like our our because we have less contact, we're going to have more hatred because literally we're exposed to fewer people since we're some of us going to lock ourselves away. I think for quite a while. 
Ah, gosh, it's a really great question, and it's a frightening one. Uh, I do, I, you know, I think that this disaster is such a. <laughs> It's like a crossroads for us in so many ways. And I think one is exactly what you're describing. Not only are we going to be more isolated and maybe see a less diverse group of people as travel is more limited, but another thing, in addition to potentially contamination risk that drives bigotry or let's call it just groupiness, you know, sort of um, ostracism of people who are dissimilar to us is a sense of scarcity. So there's there's all sorts of studies, but one in particular that I saw was that I, that I really like is from Marjorie Rhodes. She showed four and five year olds cartoons of a town where two different tribes live, and the town has a well in the middle of it. And she told some kids the well has plenty of water, and there's there's going to be plenty of water for a long time. And she told other kids the well is drying up. And when kids believed that the well was drying up, they thought it was totally above board and fair for people in each tribe to hate each other and even like hit each other. Wow. And I think that, yeah. And I think that we're entering, you know, the economic ramifications of this pandemic are going to be massive and are going to make a lot of us feel like we're in a real scarcity mindset. And that's not a very generous uh, mindset or one that's very conducive to kindness. So that's one side, the very worrisome side. The other side is, Again, this idea that when we go through collective struggles, when we when we ha- when disasters occur, so Rebecca Solnit is the best writer on this, but she has a book called The Paradise Built in Hell that's about all these disasters that have occurred over the last century, earthquakes, Katrina, 9-11, you name it. And th- there's a narrative that we tell ourselves, which is that, oh, people will tear each other apart after these disasters. They'll panic and there'll be disorder. And in fact... People are enormously kind to each other and more open after disasters because they realize that they must work together in order to survive. We're back to the bait ball, aren't mm-hmm. we? And and so I feel these two competing narratives about what disasters and this disaster can and will do to us. And I think part of the next five years, a huge part of it, is which of those stories we decide to follow. If you had to flip a coin, which one do you think it'll be? <laughs> I'm an optimist, so I, I I do believe that we can we can choose to be together through this. I'm also fighting my hardest to get that to to make people realize that that is possible because I think that too often we limit our imaginations. We believe that life is a zero sum game, and that belief becomes self fulfilling. If you believe that everything you give to someone else is something that you lose, you don't give anything to anybody else. And then that becomes a norm and it ripples outward and you actually end up in a more selfish culture. It's really interesting. A friend of mine from Japan, a really wise person named Ken Honda uh, came on the show. He wrote a book called Happy Money a while ago. He's, I think, the most successful author in Japan in the self-help genre. So like 17 million books sold, just a really nice guy. Wow. But he taught me this practice of uh, every time you spend money, uh, be grateful to the money and grateful for giving away the money. Uh, and just, you know, hey, thank you, money. And just that little <laughs> thing, it totally changes that that kind of scarcity mindset, the stuff you were just talking about there, um, where all of a sudden you don't feel the the same thing, even if you don't have a lot of money, or if you do have a lot, it, it works no matter what, because for some reason it flips that switch. It's not a it's not an empathy thing uh, or even a kindness thing. It's more of a gratitude thing. Um, where does gratitude fit in 
in your framework because you know you're talking about those kindness versus empathy versus compassion. How, how do you integrate it, or do you integrate gratitude into that? Uh, so, I mean, I think that I think of gratitude as a separate phenomenon apart from these things, but it's that doesn't mean it's unconnected to them. So, for instance, we've talked about empathy and kindness from the giver's side, but one of the biggest sources of gratitude is the kindness of others. When someone acts kindly towards us, when they empathize with us, we often feel gratitude for our connection with them, gratitude for their goodwill, gratitude for their help. And in a way, so I, I teach a class at Stanford called Becoming Kinder, which is about not just the science of empathy and kindness, but uh, it has a lot of challenges that students do every weekend, sort of exercises to, to get them to try to stretch their kindness and empathy. And, um, and one of them pertains to gratitude, which is really we ask, I ask students to notice somebody else's kindness and reinforce it. And it doesn't have to be kindness to you. Like notice someone being kind to somebody else and thank them for that behavior. Uh, and it's hugely powerful for students because I think that a lot of us, because we're so stressed and busy and overwhelmed and now anxious from the situation that we're all in together, we have blinders on sometimes for the interconnectedness of people. And when you focus on looking for kindness, guess what? You find it. You find yeah. it in enormous and vast quantities. And finding it and realizing not just this one person was kind to this one other person, but awakening to the kindness that's all around us, first of all, can influence your behavior and make you more likely to be kind. Mm -hmm. But second, I think instills a deep gratitude about the nature of humanity, that we're not all bad, that we do have a lot of powerful compassion in us. And I think that that's one tremendous source of gratitude for me. I, I really like that. Uh, it, uh, it, it lands, it lands true. In, uh, in the book, uh, you talk about kind systems and you've actually given a Ted talk on hacking empathy. And I'm a big fan of you know, systems to do things like that because systems make things easy. And you wrote a whole chapter in the war for kindness on something called kind systems. So what is a kind system? Yeah, I, I mean, it, so we think of our psychology, whether it's our personality or our kindness and empathy or whatever, as just something that's inside us, the individual. But as we've been talking about, humanity is a herd species. <laughs> we're, we're the most groupy animal uh, th that exists. We, we, we conform to the norms and structures around us. So I might want to be kind, but if everyone around me is being an asshole, I'll decide that in order to fall in line, I need to act that way too. And likewise, I might feel like being unkind, but if the people around me are emphasizing how important it is to be kind, I'll fall in line with that as well. And so it turns out that there's all sorts of evidence that one of the most powerful ways to change someone's behavior is to change what they notice about other people. So when people are exposed to or notice other people acting kindly, they are more inspired to do that themselves. And I, th I think that that's so important 
for anybody in a leadership position in any type of structure, right? So um, since the book came out, I've talked with leaders in hospital systems, school systems, prison systems, businesses, and other organizations. And they all, they sort of sometimes ask me, like, is there a pill that I can give my team members to make them more empathic? I'm like, no, you are the pill. You're the only, like, because by, by setting an example, by incentivizing, highlighting, and amplifying kind behaviors, you make them stickier, you make them more magnetic, you make them more likely to ripple outwards through a culture. And so I, I, you know, I tell leaders to make, and, uh, and people in general, that they should make empathy and kindness loud in order to make it forceful. It, it reminds me of uh, Mr. Rogers. Uh, he, do you know the quote I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah thought look you for would. the helpers. Yeah, look for the helpers. His mom told him that. Whenever you see a fire or a disaster, look for the helpers to totally help him reframe it. Oh, look, there's always someone there to help. And talk about powerful messaging for you know for a little kid, which is when he got that message. Um, that's that's solid parenting right there. Uh, yeah, but it works for adults too, and even with the the virus. Uh, I mean, I I have so many doctor friends who are working twenty four seven, not just in hospitals, but also on doing research and figuring things out and sharing information about it. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of people working on it uh, to the point that I, I'm way more confident uh, than I would have been you know, a month ago. Just, oh yeah, this, this is eminently hackable. In fact, there's enough data points now that I, I think I can, I can pretty much see that. How do you stay out of the hospital path clearly? Because mm. there are thousands of very knowledgeable people helping, not to mention you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of people exposing themselves and you know, working 24 hour shifts and things like that in hospitals. So um, you know, we can all be grateful for that. That this moment is populated by helpers. I mean, you were talking about scientists. There's never been a, a, a greater global collaboration among scientists than this pandemic. I mean, it's really, it, as, as you might know, scientists can be a pretty competitive bunch they can keep insights to themselves until they publish them and get prestige. All of that has, well, not all of it, but a lot of that has disintegrated in the face of this pandemic. People, scientists are just collaborating at a scale that I've never seen before. And one of the largest collaborations to sort of run international clinical trials is actually called Solidarity. Wow. Right? So even, even, the, even the names of our studies are taking on this new characteristic of understanding our togetherness in, in, in this moment. Uh, I, I, I agree with you. There is an altruism from scientists and I'm seeing it from entrepreneurs too. They're sort of saying, oh, how do I help? And it's funny because the altruism of entrepreneurs is oftentimes, how do I make helping people self-sustaining? Uh, that's called a business. And yeah. <laughs> then there's straight up altruism, which is I did, I did too much of that. So I have lots of extra cash. Uh, so now I have to give it to someone uh, to spend, uh, which is another form of <laughs> donation. But but seriously, running a company that actually helps people with lower margins, so things are more affordable, is a direct form of altruism. Uh, and if you run it so that your margins are so low, you've got a business. Uh, that's not the kind of behavior that leads to more altruism. So it doesn't work either. But uh, <laughs> I, I I may be kind of going off the rails there a little bit. But I I do see the community of entrepreneurs. Some of them are saying, "Wow, my business is probably trashed." But instead of saying, woe is me, and going into a pity cycle, they're saying, how else can I help people? Because that's what I do. And oh, and by the way, I get paid for that. So I, I've talked to dozens of friends in that, in that mindset saying, you know, what's going to happen to my events business? And the answer is nobody knows. Uh, but in the meantime, they're saying, all right, next. 
Uh, and I, I think there's a mindset there that is based uh, in in large part on service to others, uh, which is part of that empathy thing. I, I think you're you're so right. And leaders of all sorts have really incredibly stepped up in this moment. And I, you know, I want to say that it's so interesting to me that so since the book came out, I've received like hundreds of emails from people that say something along these lines. Thank you for writing this book. I yearn for a more empathic, caring culture, but I'm the only one. Everyone else around me is cruel. And I'm like, can, can I get you all in a group chat or something? Because yeah. because I think that oftentimes we don't realize that we're not just free agents swimming upstream against a culture of callousness and indifference. We build culture together. We are we are yeah. we are culture when you aggregate us. And, and I think that that's when I talk about kind systems, that's what I mean, is that we can be mindful, not just about hacking our own kindness, but about creating systems around people and around ourselves that make kindness our first option, that make it clear that this is really one of the defining qualities of our species. Is there any data that says that people who are uh, kind or empathetic or show compassion um, are less vocal uh, than trolls and haters? Not that I know of. Uh, there's a study on trolls that's pretty interesting that suggests that they actually oftentimes have pretty high cognitive empathy. So they're, and this is true of bullies, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you're going to harm someone, you kind of have to get in their head. Yeah. And the better you are at understanding them, the better you'll be at manipulating them. Anyways, I digress. I don't know uh, 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 specifically about any work focusing on the relative volume of kind versus unkind people. But I will say that oftentimes unkind behavior becomes viral. So okay. on social for, media, for, for sure, right? Yeah. So for instance, um, William Brady and Jay Van Bavel and Molly Crockett, some of my friends have done this work where they look at like hundreds of thousands of tweets and they quantify how much outrage um, someone a tweet contains. And it turns out that when people express outrage, especially towards people who are from a different group, they're more likely to be liked and retweeted, especially by people who already agree with them. And from a sort of reinforcement learning perspective, that little dose of social reward makes it more likely that people act in outrage later on. So I don't know that kinder versus less kind people are inherently louder, but I think unfortunately, parts of our culture amplify the unkind voices more than the kind ones. And that's something that is up to us that we could fix, but I think it's unfortunately true right now. Okay, so we have a social media amplification thing um, I've I've just found that the you know, maybe four percent or so of people, maybe ten percent of people who are uh, in that sociopath, psychopath, heavy duty, traumatized, I was bullied too much, troll population, uh, they sometimes can take over the room. So they're the one who stands up and shouts. They're the one who leaves, you know, most of the uh, most of the garbage comments. And I went through a an interesting experience about five six years ago. Um, one of the largest uh, podcasters came after me uh, reputation-wise for financial reasons, like that I have in writing from him. And wow. it was it was a really weird time because it went from, Dave, thank you, you know, I've lost 100 pounds on your diet, blah, 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 like lots of gratitude, kindness sort of posts to overnight, just just like, like solid, Dave, you're a con artist, snake oil salesman, you're a bad person. And it was really jarring and weird. And then uh, I, I think it was... Uh, it's probably Tim Ferriss uh, told me, uh, maybe after one of the podcasts I did with him, uh, said, hey, Dave, uh, you just have to understand, you can click ban delete 
on those guys and they'll go away and, and there's really probably not that many of them. And so I, I tried it and it turns out there really weren't that many of them, but there were 80% of the volume, right? But when you're just like, you know, STFU, you're gone. Uh, and I could do that with empathy, but it was basically like, you spent five minutes crafting an attack and I spent half a second deleting it, banning it and not letting it get to me. Uh, you're going to run out of resources. And it turns out it took like two weeks of cleaning my feeds by just ruthlessly banning trolls. It was gone and all the kindness came back. But when those those people were there, the amount of net kindness seemed like it dropped a lot. So th there's some kind of weird dynamic going on there where uh, uh, when when you're in that mindset that makes you want to cause harm to others, the the number of times you do that, maybe it's just digital, but it seems like it would go up and then it kind of chases away the, oh, look, look at the helpers. So there's no helpers here. There's just a big bully. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry you went through that. That, But it seems like you really Muhammad Ali'd it, you know, like like you're just, you kind of did pulled rope-a-dope where you got the other the other person to expend a lot more energy than you did. I, I mean- Well, it was I many that, people. It was, you know, that a, a, a big podcaster, you know, says a bunch of slanderous stuff about me. So then a bunch of, I don't know, lonely 14-year-old kids or something. I, I don't know who it was. Um, I mostly- uh, uh, I never did see most of them didn't have the real face on their social media profiles amazingly. Yeah, you know, I um in, in the book I talk about Tony McAleer, who was a um a leader of a of the neo of a neo-Nazi movement and white supremacist movement in Canada and sort of he he told me all, all about his descent into this life of hate and then how he got out. And you know, he describes hate group members, there was a conference in 2011 that was put on by was one of the companies that is now part of Alphabet. Um, so it's sort of like a Google related company that brought together hate group members from around the world. And Tony tells me that they he noticed these wild commonalities between them. Because So these were all ex-hate group members. These okay. are people who had been in hate groups. And because obviously, I don't think they'd want to get together if they were former vegans in there and stuff like that. <laughs> you laughed. You're a bad man. You weren't supposed to laugh at oh, that. Actually, oh, you were. Oh. It's okay. Shame on you. I, I was. I was a former raw vegan. I'm recovered. Uh, so, uh, so, so he he said that that the that there were these amazing things these people had in common. Not when it came to their opinions, but when it came to their life history. Oh, interesting. Okay. Many many from abusive homes were neglected in some way. Really using hatred to paper over uh, a, a, a massive amounts of self-hatred, self-loathing, and loneliness. There's a sense that these individuals had learned early in their life that love was not an option for them. And so they decided to protect themselves by whatever means necessary. And one of the clearest ways to do that is to just be, you know, if, if, you, if you can't defend yourself, be offensive, you know, be sort of harm others so that they won't harm you. And many of these people also got out of this life um, when, according to Tony, I don't know that there's research on this, but this is his story, when they had their first kid. Yeah. Because they realized that their child, for many of them, was the first time that they had felt unconditional love, not for the child, from the child. Interesting. That, it, that, that being loved by a child and, and also loving them was the first time that they had experienced that type of care. And that kind of snapped them out of their need for hatred. That's profound. Uh, so maybe that's one additional reason to have kids. What do you think is the, the future of, of 
empathy and kindness as you put your future hat on, keeping in mind that we have a whole uh, coronavirus boomer generation uh, coming out, all these people spending three or four months at home with their spouse, pretty sure there's going to be a lot of babies nine months from now. Uh, And so, but these are babies who were conceived and probably growing up during a time of economic crisis and pandemic fear and all that kind of stuff. So tell me what empathy looks like three years, five years, and 25 years from now. Yeah. First of all, I, I agree with you that there'll be a, a potential boom, but I bet it will be made of almost entirely firstborn children. I don't know that, <laughs> that people who are... <laughs> those those are children have learned our lesson? Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, I don't know that people who are crammed into, into their homes with... Yeah. Uh, I don't know, preschoolers are necessarily having the most romantic time on mm, earth. <laughs> no, they're just trying to sleep. I get that. Um, no, but to your question, I, which I think is is the question. Um, so I, I think it gets back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, if, if you asked me this six months ago, I would have told you about the role of empathy for future generations in sort of helping us think about, well, what do we want to do? environmentally? Who do, who do we want to protect? How far can our empathic imagination go? How far can we extend the definition of us? Can we extend it to future generations who haven't been born yet? Now, my answer is really, what will we do with this moment? And as we were talking about earlier, I see a version of this where we become more scared, more isolated, where we see other people as vectors of infection and disease, where we see that there aren't enough resources. And so we hoard our own, ironically producing increasing scarcity and where many of the bonds that we have fall apart. And I see another future. So I guess that we're on the three to five year time scale now where we again rally and, and decide that this disaster has snapped us out of the belief that we're all separate from each other and into the realization that we can only survive by working together, where the trends that we've seen in science and in communities sort of increase and where we rediscover things like neighbors. (laughs) Like like now that we're grounded and not traveling, maybe we'll create a more sustainable, more local life where we can sort of have deeper more old-fashioned networks and communities. And if we can get there, then I think this could be, and I'm not trying to silver lining this horrible event in our lives, but it could be a moment of great growth and learning where we actually come back to our roots as as a fundamentally social species. You really are an optimist. And uh, I, I share that view. Getting to know the people in your neighborhood is um, it, it's interesting. I, I moved from you know, Silicon Valley, where it's, it's exceptionally common to not know the person in the house next to you, which, which is sort of surprising, but uh, it it's probably more common than not, unless you've been in your neighborhood for 10 years or something, you, you might know one or two people. Uh, and now I live in a very small community, but I, I'm on 32 acres. You know, I look out, I see trees and, and our, our pigs and sheep are roaming around out there. Uh, so it's not like we have occasion to... You know, you know, see someone, you know, from your front yard situation, but there is a, a community that that's very different. I imagine like it would have been 30 or 40 years ago, uh, just because, oh yeah, everyone knows that guy has the tractor and that guy knows how to build a fence and, and that sort of thing. It's still intact. And I think a lot of the world still works like that quite a bit. And the rest of us, like, I don't know, I just went to YouTube, but then 
even if you go to YouTube to figure out how to build a fence or, or whatever it is, you click on the link and send a message to the guy who built the fence. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, you have to use a bigger nail or whatever. Don't ask me how to build a fence. I have you know, friends who know how to do that. But, <laughs> but like, like this is really happening. And so it can be virtual. But I, I do think we're going to see more. It doesn't matter if I needed help, if the person's across the planet, who in my social circle, who in, who in my my area has the skills that we need right now. And I think that will happen because just distribution of those skills is really important now that we all recognize, hey, you know, maybe a just-in-time supply chain uh, so you can get your, you know, fried prepared nuggets, uh, it, you know, on, <laughs> on demand in one hour. Yay. But maybe you need a little more system resilience uh, for society and that to have that, you're going to have to form connections. And when you form connections, you're going to get empathy. When you have empathy, you'll have kindness. And uh, maybe maybe that'll happen. I, I I like to think it will. So let's let's all yes, cross our fingers I, for I, it. I love that. I mean, Michael Pollan talked about our food ecosystem. I think as like uh, efficient but brittle, right? That that it, it's 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 really good at doing what we are doing right now. But any perturbation really puts it in danger. And you know, I mean, to your point, you said earlier that a lot of us still live in those interconnected communities, but it's actually less and less, right? So in 1950 one third of humanity was urban. And by 2050, at least this was true a year ago, two thirds of humanity will be urban. So we're rapidly moving into these massive sort of uh, metropoli where we see a lot of people and don't know any of them. And we're living alone way more than at any time in human history as well. So I think a lot of us have talked endlessly about the disintegration of those communities as we move to a system that's just about Again, this ultra efficient but depersonalized market that is all about the sort of, you know, uh, uh, un poorly defined nugget that you can get at will, right? And, and that's, we've been building a culture for those nuggets and for those nugget delivery systems. And maybe that culture won't survive whatever is coming next, but maybe it wasn't that natural or healthy to begin with. Um, and one wonders whether some of what we'll lose might have been harming us all, all along. I, 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 again, I don't want a silver lining what is really a lot of pain for a lot of people. But I do think that even from trauma, we can learn and grow if, if we pay attention in the right ways. Uh, very, very well said. And uh, thank you for being on, uh, on Bulletproof Radio. And for paying attention to kindness, your book title is fantastic. War on or War for Kindness uh, is uh, very memorable. That's your website too, War for Kindness. Uh, so if if you're at home right now and you're listening to this, uh, thinking, "All right, uh, kindness probably has a role. Maybe I'm feeling a little bit lonely." Turning up empathy with the specific set of tools and instructions that are in the book is a very valuable use of your time. It's different than meditation. Um, it's it, although there are, are overlaps and there's some relatedness there. Um, it's different than exercise, different than eating well. Uh, and it's part of not staying sane, which is a terribly low goal, almost as low as we're going to flatten the curve. instead. Of we're going to eliminate the curve or lower the curve, which ought to be a real goal. So it, instead of saying, I'm going to survive the pandemic, actually, how do I come out of it uh, better? Uh, and how do I not stress about you know doing too much to be better? But this is one of those things that has a very, very high ROI for you. So Hack your empathy, uh, read the book, and just pay attention to all the good stuff people are doing, even in the midst of all the political maneuverings and fear-mongering and all the other stuff like that. And thanks for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed, subscribe. 
And I'd love it if you take a minute to show some kindness and leave a review for the show. I've been doing some extra episodes for you uh, because I know you have a little bit more time at home. And I've been really targeting guests for you who are going to be useful and effective to keep you strong and resilient at all the levels, including your mindset, including your physical body, and including your even your spiritual side. And I think you'll find all of those are touched on when you look at war for kindness. Have a beautiful day. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.